Welcome, Interiors lovers, to the Daniel House Book Club. I'm Peter Spaulding, the CCO, or Chief Creative Officer of Daniel House Club, and I'll be your host. Today is my husband's first day back in the office after more than two years working from home, and so we have a puggle wandering around looking very sad. Um, and now he's hopping back into his basket. So if you hear um, some surprise snoring, that's Toby the Puggle um, feeling lonely. Anyway, um, here at Daniel House Book Club, uh, together we are making a seemingly endless journey through the eight books every interiors lover should have read according to Architectural Digest. Um, I'm kidding, we're having a wonderful time. And so far we've covered the decoration of houses, the house in good taste, the interaction of color, 1,000 chairs, and now we're working our way through Mark Hampton's, or Mark Hampton on decorating. And before we dig into today's section on style, let me give you a little plug for the Daniel House Club. If you're an interior designer and you've spent any time specifying furniture for your clients, you know two things. It can be very profitable and it can be a hellacious nightmare you'd do anything to avoid. But the profits make it difficult to avoid, so you buckle up and do the hard work of forming the right vendor relationships, attempting to hit minimum orders to procure helpful pricing with enough manufacturers to put a whole house together. Then you place your orders and you spend the rest of your waking, sometimes unbillable hours tracking hundreds of packages as they circulate the globe. You wonder when will death come, and you hope it's soon. Now though, you just have to visit danielhouse.club, become a member, and enjoy really great pricing across more than 100 vendors. You never have to worry about hitting minimums to keep your pricing with us. And what's more, you don't have to follow up with the 100 reps that you've placed orders with to figure out where your pieces are. We track everything for you. We offer a variety of shipping options nationwide, including White Glove, and the price is always just 10% of your order for standard shipping. Just the other day, one of our members ordered 93 items across 22 different vendors. Instead of contacting each company individually, she just pressed complete order, and we began the heavy, heavy lifting from there. Best of all, because she's a Pro Plus member, she purchased everything at 50% off, so she has plenty of room to make money on the work that she's used to that used to take her weeks and still extend a discount from retail to her clients. It doesn't get much better than that. So visit danielhouse.club and become a member today. Okay, I was going to say that today's conversation on styles might be the one I'm most excited about focusing on in the legendary decorator Mark Hampton's book, but then I realized the next section is titled Plans. And truly, I can't think of anything more exciting to me in the design process than thinking about the floor plan and how I'll choreograph the movement of people through the space I'm making. Hampton doesn't really go there, um, but a lot of time, um, a lot of times, plans and the appropriate stylistic jumping-off points go hand in hand. But you all know that, so I digress. After majoring in architectural history at NYU, where my education could equally have been titled Ceaseless Walking Tours of New York City and its design and architecture firms, 
I spent brief periods at a variety of Masters of Architecture programs. First, I went to the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, which was ranked number one that year. I should have thought more about why it was ranked so highly. It was, and probably still is, at the forefront of technology. And the thing is, I believed then, and still do, that technology in and of itself does not make great architecture. The first day I was there, I asked one of the upperclassmen um, where the library was. She had never been. I packed my bags the next day and went to what had been my second choice, the University of Wisconsin, because that's where my family is from, and after a very expensive undergraduate degree, I thought maybe I could save everybody some money. I spent the summer there learning to draft and designing some kind of weird park to occupy a small hall in the block, in a block downtown next to the Amtrak station. Actually, I enjoyed myself, though I was frustrated that the professors had gotten some dates wrong in the whirlwind through history. It was only when our studio professor told a cohort she only allowed her students to include a single curve in their designs in all of their years with her because they were just too hard to pull off well that I sensed maybe this was not the right place for me. So I returned to New York where I enrolled in a one-year immersive experience in Beaux-Arts education. If you don't know, the École de Beaux-Arts in Paris was the preeminent school of architecture from the 18th century into the early 20th century. Virtually all American architects traveled to be educated there and returned with an understanding of European classicism that could not be gotten in a place where there was none to see. Anyway, this program was not wholly conceived and not wholly successful, but it did teach me to open my eyes to style. Or a huge range of styles, actually, that I had always cared about but never been allowed to pursue. It was completely enthralling, and I forgot that the rest of the world wasn't so steeped. Then I moved to Portland, Oregon, where I began my own design practice with the help of my brother Alex, who is now our CEO. We went to a party for Design Week Portland, and a woman asked us what we did. I said, we do a lot of interior architecture and design, and tend to specialize in the traditional realm. She responded, traditional sounds like Ohio and turned around to find someone who presumably had something real to say. The only more salient disregard I know for style is much more common. It's the builder asking his client, did you want a traditional or a contemporary? As if this is all the inquiry required to determine what the crown molding of an entire house will be. What I'm getting at is style, this thing we are barely permitted to learn about, is actually very important, and knowing about it in detail is where architects and designers have a lot of latent power. What I love most about Mark Hampton's section on style is that it covers a big number of styles and is totally unselfconscious about the fact that all those it covers fall under the umbrella of what is now often disparagingly called traditional. Traditional is a word we should banish from our vocabulary. It's about, uh, it's about as helpful as answering a red one when someone asks what kind of car you drive. Almost every make is offered in red. Surely there's a better analogy, although maybe not, since I think one could argue fairly easily that it's possible to have traditional modernism. So really, every brand of design has a language 
that is traditional to its makeup. So traditional is a stupid word that seems to convey a lot of beige and some tacky columns, and we should just retire it until it can conjure up some less boring images once again. But Mark Hampton clearly knows that what we've resorted to calling traditional and decided means to include a chair rail encompasses a nearly limitless world of possibilities. It is in fact a language that can be spoken with a variety of accents or even in different dialects and which can convey so, so much. He starts us with what he calls the Victorian comeback. This is funny because if you ask me offhandedly, I'd say, oh, I hate Victorian. And actually, I do. I hate those San Franciscan row houses the Olsen twins lived in in that show I never remember the name of. I really don't like funny East Lake style architecture with a confection of little tiny stick-like details striking off in all directions. But Hampton says a bunch of things that really make me sort of fall in love with the idea of another Victorian comeback. We've finally finished a mid-century modern com comeback, which is great because there are like three sofas and two chairs and a palette of five colors and they're gray, extra gray, black, white, and maybe orange that really belong in that realm. Now, you can feel this groundswell. We're in the process of leaping off the diving board and heading for an era that feels a lot more aesthetically expansive. Hampton points out that the virtue of the Victorian is its impurity, and I think that's right on the money. And I don't think this is just a visual thing. It's not only that it looks weird, it's that it is culturally impure too, and that doesn't sound great. So what I mean is the Victorians, the people living in England under the reign of Queen Victoria, which lasted from 1837 to 1901, held a very expansive view of the world. I mean, they wanted it all to be theirs, but they also drew inspiration from it. They brought home artifacts, those artifacts informed new interests, and these new interests stilted the language of architecture and design, but also turned domestic settings into, like, living museums. I do not think American Victorian homes were quite as worldly as their English counterparts, but they still represented a great willingness to play fast and loose, especially in the way rooms connected to one another. The other attribute that Hampton points out about Victorian design, which both excites and slightly repels me, is that it is largely achieved through decorative rather than architectural effects. Those miles and miles of curtains Edith Wharton and Ogden Codman lamented finding where they preferred an architecturally detailed opening for a doorway are a perfect example. But so often we have to rely at least a little bit on decorative effects to make something work. Hampton makes his point after describing a highly decorated room by Albert Hadley with tassels and fringe everywhere that made him feel like Aladdin. You can make an atmosphere so rich that no one remembers a room even has walls. The over-the-top piece of this oppresses me, but the opportunity to create an atmosphere out of nothing is pretty exciting. I am surprised by the number of people, even trained architects, who say they want nothing to do with tradition, but then cannot even discern a Victorian house from a classical one. How can you so despise something that you know so little about? There's Toby whining. You're okay. If you think about Victorian as wacky and overwrought, you likely think of classical as very proper and rigid. 
and maybe a little pompous. Art historians talk about classical and neoclassical, and the work they categorize as such is often discernible. But I think this does the extremely robust genre a disservice. Classical design has been practiced continuously since ancient Greece. It must have a decent range of expressive possibilities. The neo prefix implies some kind of revival, and this period was a return to so-called rational thought after the pre perceived excesses of the Rococo and the Romantic. But the distinctions could have you thinking that Rococo design somehow lied outside of the realm of the classical, which is complete nonsense. But I'm mostly getting away from what Hampton is talking about, except not quite. First, he says there is a boldness to furniture pieces designed for specific locations, and that the strong architectural language of classical um, in this big assertive furniture actually is great in smaller contemporary rooms because it offers the possibility, again, of introducing architecture where there is none. Because of the adjectives he used, we know he's not talking about Rococo furniture here, which is dainty and highly decorative, but he brings us into the work of 18th century furniture maker William Kent and distinguishes between two types of work he is known for. While he designed solid secretaries ornamented with columns and pediments and urns and made a very hard mahogany, he also created huge console tables carved in soft pine and gilded and appearing festooned in swags and seashells and full seemingly living figures. The most restrained and the most exuberant of these pieces lay within the confines of the classical. And Hampton says, the rather large scale of these sorts of furnishings pair very nicely with bold contemporary artwork. So the classical has an enormous range and pairs very nicely with things that are not within the classical. So the next style he looks at is chinoiserie, and chinoiserie has been popular for at least the last decade again. I mean, it never really left us, but it probably wasn't at the forefront when I was a kid. Everyone wants to have a beautiful wallpaper mural with exotic, exotic foliage dotted with little pagodas and pugs now, and Hampton makes a compelling point about why this style's so merited. Um, that is, that it erases seriousness, which helps not treat objects so importantly. This is especially smart when the objects you have in a room might be pretty, but not very valuable or authentic. Chinoiserie is inherently a bit inauthentic itself, although this is something I struggle with insofar as objects from, um, from the Far East authentically interested to people in Europe for hundreds of years to the point where if they could not afford real items shipped thousands of miles in a very high demand, they'd create their own interpretations in their homeland. The desire to have something, while lacking the means to procure it, um, does not strike me as inauthentic. It strikes me as one of the daily experiences of being human and therefore having limits. Stuff that falls into the chinoiserie category is just unserious European interpretation of Eastern design. The very best example, as Hampton reminds us, is the Prince Regent's Brighton Pavilion, where um, 
there's so much color and pattern that it's not even possible to talk about things not matching. The point is just to be riotous. Um, and there's no need when including chinoiserie textiles or furnishings to have anything else in the room respond to it, which makes this a wonderfully versatile style that's always worth um, inclusion, even if maybe uh, your space is actually quite contemporary. Um, also sort of strange and versatile are furnishings from the Scandinavian countries. Uh, growing out of the Rococo uh, of more southern nations was the Gustavian style, which had some of the heaving forms of Baroque and Rococo pieces, but simplified, stripped of a lot of ornate carving and gilded or painted in soft colors. Sometimes, in more remote areas, craftspeople did not exist to do the more elaborate work disseminating from urban centers, but the simplified work has a lot of merit on its own. As the energetic Rococo faded into the more stalwart neoclassicism, more remote craftspeople were adequately equipped to handle the style's plainer forms, and its popularity in Northern Europe was long-lived. Sort of like work in colonizing Victorian England, work in Russia around this time made reference to numerous countries at once. In a palace Catherine the Great gifted to her son Paul, furnishing, furnishings uh, simultaneously drew from Robert Adam, Louis XVI, and the severe forms of Ledoux. Hampton assures us it was chic, and so I believe him. I do think, though, that it's worth contemplating the difference between including a chair from another culture in your room and bringing references to another's culture, another culture's chair into a chair you design yourself. I don't think there's anything wrong with either. In fact, I'd encourage both. But those acts, and maybe even the reason for them, are very distinct from one another. Finally... From the north, Hampton mentions Carl and Karen Larson, who famously published watercolor paintings of their brightly colored, beautifully crafted rooms in their home in Sweden around the turn of the last century. I mention this only because what he says about it sets us up so nicely to move into his segment on the English country house style. The cozy informality we all pride ourselves on, that quality of manners that is the opposite of pomposity, becomes a visual phenomenon in these rooms. I'm not sure that we can say the English country style is always the opposite of pompous, as sometimes its reverse snobbery can be the very essence of self-importance. But more often than not, it is the most cozily informal style we know. The self-importance piece comes in an attitude of sneering at anything new as distasteful like the fact that you even had to buy your furniture at all and didn't find a whole world of family treasures accumulated over hundreds of years up in your attic is just very second class. But this is a problem worth getting over, because the reward of extreme comfort is what lies beyond the threshold. Hampton calls it a luxury that is not indecent, and a whole atmosphere as an inspired background for living. All this hinges on a true respect for the past, and because he has a couple of consecutive paragraphs that so well sum up the rest of the mood, I think I'll just read them to you. Some rooms are unfortunately all foreground, with pictures and accessories jumping out at you, extravagant flowers, rich effects. Collections of what auction catalogs label rare and extremely fine furniture cause you to ponder 
ghastly questions such as how much all this must have cost. A general feeling of intimidation sets in. At the very heart of the English country house room, though, there is a sense of welcoming background for reading and writing, for physical as well as visual comfort. It is a background appealing to men and women alike, to city folk and country folk, to grown-ups and children. The fire crackles away and sometimes smokes too. The promise of tea is actually kept, and when the tea arrives, there is something delicious to eat on it. Um, the simple English farmhouse, sitting close to the ground, with its paneled hall and the sort of staircase that resembles our own colonial versions in another architectural type that is very pleasing to the modern eye. One of my favorite examples is in Oxfordshire and is still surrounded by its farm buildings. The entrance drive goes past barns and sheds and uh, an old orchard. The main part of the house is early 18th century, but there are later wings and additions including a library built just a few years ago. The front door is almost level with the motor cart, which allows you to enter without any undue sense of grandeur. What you do feel upon entering is a close connection to the garden and the surrounding farm. In the hall you see boots and hats, baskets and leashes. The table has a well-worn visitor's book, a bowl of flowers, a pretty dish that usually has a set of car keys in it. Because the floors are old and irregular, a flat, small-patterned carpet covers everything and goes up the stairs. The Queen Anne paneling, which was once painted, has been stripped and waxed. A pair of mirrors far too rich for the architecture and proportions of the house, but beautiful nevertheless, hangs over bookcases that hold the overflow of books and magazines. In the small rooms you pass through on your way to the big new library, there are many pieces of attractive furniture, none of which seems to have been recently acquired, all of which I'd love to own. The sofas and chairs are covered in lovely materials with a certain amount of amount of the inevitable chintz, but nowhere does there appear to be a rigid scheme. The library has two cozy seating groups in addition to a desk, a drinks table, a gaming table, and about eight small chairs that can be moved everywhere about when they're needed. The pictures span 200 years and their differing market values are equally widespread. Furniture comes and goes, along with the books and flowers, but there is no sense of impermanence. Every part of this house reverberates with the liveliness of family life and farm activity. So, it is really a place to live. This style, more than an attitude toward things, really is surprisingly easier to achieve and to live with than the final one Hampton addresses, that of early American purity. We started with the Victorian, whose virtue was its impurity, and we're ending with the style that's all about an incorruptible stoic beauty. Interestingly, he points out other colonial styles are usually not successful, like the over-ornate, over-scaled over British Raj, but the early Americans benefited from breaking with a nation just as it began its aesthetic and cultural ascent, rather than after it had already gobbled up much of the world. This style does accept variety, as long as the variety maintains the important factor of simplicity and discipline. 
Where a British country house can suck in furniture like a lung-breathing air, the early American look is more judicious. Hampton says that if there were an Academy Award for American design, it would take the form of a Windsor chair, one of early America's most iconic pieces of furniture. And you've all heard me gush numerous times about the merits of this chair, but I do just want to point out, if you engage with it, its simplicity is in how it uses a minimal amount of material to achieve maximum, maximum strength. But some of its forms are really heaving Baroque gestures. It is not a crude chair and or one lacking or even really spare in artistic effort. It's a force. One detractor is the huge amount of commercial junk produced since the early Americans made their homes. This really was so much more a problem when Hampton was writing than it is today when virtually no manufacturers are selling muck American furnishing. But I imagine someday it might be a problem again. Keeping in mind that simplicity and discipline are its virtues will keep you on track if you ever decide to engage with this style in a meaningful way. And that pretty much sums up uh, Mark Hampton's section on style. Uh, I highly re recommend reading it and looking at some of the beautiful illustrations he's included. Um, and before I say goodbye, I do just want to say that I don't think that style is a dirty word like so many schools of architecture and maybe some of design do. Um, but I do think it can be a confining word. I think the great benefit of knowing period styles very well is not so you can accurately recreate them, but so you can rely on their tenets as you create personal places that may defy stylistic categorization. We talk a lot about eclecticism today, but there's trained eclecticism and random eclecticism, and a even not that discerning eye can probably see the difference. Those eyes know what will work based on how they understand the origins of something's original conception. And it's so, that is why studying style will really, really help you go far. Okay, I'll talk to you later um, next week as we look at what Mark Hampton has to say about plans. See you then. <laughs>